Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nakchang Rinpoche, Chapter 26, Part 2. Maybe I'd meet up with Penelope, Rebecca or Merrill in the future, but they weren't going to remain single forever on the chance that I'd return from the Himalayas in search of one of them. There was nothing I could say before I left to give any indication of anything other than mystery. And even if I did meet up with one of them again, I'd have her parents to encounter. Their parents, I came to understand, made Mr Gascoigne look like a distinct social inferior. They told me this merely to explain that Det's father was a parvenu, and thus she had no reason at all to lord it over me. Their parents were in the region of the upper middle class who rubbed shoulders with the aristocracy, but it failed to imbue them with the slightest degree of hauteur. It tends to be like that with the nouveau riche, Penelope had commented. They're often insecure and need to establish as much social distance as they can from anyone they perceive as being of lower class. The funny thing is that they tend to be more snobbish the closer in social status they see other people as being to the social bracket to which they want to belong or pretend to belong. Suddenly I understood something. Oh, I see now, she's in the jealous god realm. Jealous god realm? What's that? Penelope had asked with obvious fascination. It's one of six mind states. It's a lot to go into, but basically it's concerned with neurotic speed. The greater the neurotic speed, the more hellish existence seems, and the slower, the more heavenly. The gods are all in the slowest cycle, and so they're self-composed to the extent that they become seraphic or ethereal. They've made it to the top, and nothing poses a threat to them. They have nothing left to achieve, and they're free to languidly admire themselves or each other. They are relaxed enough to be kindly. The jealous gods, however, are hardwired rivals. They're obsessed with status and the higher levels of status they could attain. They have a corrosive kind of vanity. Where do human beings fit into the picture? Well, the human realm is the one where realisation is possible because there's a sense of humour. Penelope had burst out laughing at this point, to which I had responded, exactly. Later, with this conversation emerging from memory, I said to Merrill, You know, you have each been as good friends to me as Steve and Ron. I'm sadder to leave here than I can express. I could have stayed here in this house with you three forever. But life isn't like that, is it? No, Merrill sighed, her eyes brimming. I, then it was too much for her, and she plunged her face into her hands and sobbed. That was too much for me, and I sat there weeping with her. <clears throat> Merrill, Rebecca and Penelope had wanted a relationship with me. Each was in love with me, and as soon as it was expressed, I found myself in love with each of them. It was utterly impossible, inexplicable, 
incomprehensible, unfathomable, implausible, inconceivable. The three ladies, one after another, drove a corkscrew into my pericardium. It twisted itself, sans remorse, or rather, I twisted. It was passing strange. It was, to be melodramatic, a harrowing scene from a Shakespearean tragedy. My story being done, she gave me for my pains a world of sighs. She swore, in faith, twas strange, twas passing strange, twas pitiful, twas wondrous pitiful. She wished she had not heard it, yet she wished that heaven had made her such a man. The days passed. I was rejected by the RCA without being called for an interview. They viewed my portfolio and decided I wasn't interesting. How was that possible? Not that I'm the best thing since Botticelli, but I'd got a first-class honours degree. Derek Crow had practically written me a purple prose eulogy of a reference. So what went wrong? Were the other candidates that much better? My mind turned back to how much I'd been enticed by the prospect of having Dorje Bernachem destroy my life. I'd felt vaguely heroic in making that decision. I'd felt that this was the correct course for a serious practitioner to take. Was Dorje Bernachem now making me responsible for that choice? Was Dorje Bernachem responsible for the tragic revelation of the mutually unrequitable love of three ladies? Was Dorje Bernachem responsible for my rejection by the RCA? No. That would be eternalist superstition. Then a more down-to-earth memory trickled into the forefront. Just before the external assessors arrived, Dick Taylor, the head of department, made his rounds of the degree show. He paused at my exhibition and said, Well, Victor Simerson, You never quite came to the boil as an illustrator, did you? How long had he planned that, I wondered? Since my dictatorship remark in the first term? Dick Taylor on the first day of term, having bored everyone rigid for an hour or so with his philosophy of graphic design, told us, of course, there is room for different points of view, This isn't a dictatorship. And I'd blurted out, sounds more like a dictatorship. I was such a balefully bolshy fellow in those days. I hoped I'd grown out of it, but I hadn't. Dick Taylor had made a joke about my name, so I'd flung it back at him with a big grin. No, Dick, but then I'd never aspired to be a codpiece couturier. There'd been muffled guffaws from the tutors, as before, but this time Dick Taylor's slight smile remained. You know the wise saw? He paused for effect. 
I raised my eyebrows to indicate that I was not aware of which wise saw he was referring. He who laughs last laughs longest. You would do well to remember it. Then, still with his slight smile, he moved on to the next display, as if nothing had happened. When considering that, I realised that my rejection by the RCA had a cause other than Dorje Bernakchen. All Dick Taylor had to have done was to have written a private letter to the RCA. Derek Crow, after all, wasn't the head of graphic design. Derek was the head of illustration, which was a subset of graphic design. Illustration did operate as an autonomous entity, but alas, it wasn't. I had no proof, however, and the thought of mentioning the possibility to Derek seemed like something I would not want to do. It would put Derek in a horribly awkward position. And to what end? If Dick Taylor had described me as some sort of maverick, dissident, rebel or insurgent, I was scuppered in any case. I had no need to take Derek down with me. Dick was not a wonderful human being, but in the first year I'd still been impetuous, impulsive and terminally naive. Nobody's fault but mine. It occurred to me that I could still be fighting my father. I had peculiar authority issues which applied to some authorities, yet not others. With Kjabje Dujum Rimshe, my authority issues were entirely absent. So maybe I didn't have authority issues in the conventional sense. Whether conventional or unconventional, however, my need to stand my ground with petty tyrants was not always wise, let alone circumspect. Maybe it was rarely wise, but standing my ground was somehow too seductive when a witty riposte appeared in an instant. Telling Dick Taylor that I'd never aspired to be a codpiece couturier was evidently far funnier than his line about Simerson never having come to the boil. Two of the graphic design lecturers had expressed their appreciation for it in private after that event. They even told me that Dick Taylor had thoroughly deserved my response. They deemed it unworthy for a man of his age and status to attempt to humiliate a student especially one who'd just been awarded a first-class honours degree. They told me that my remark had caused great mirth in the department. Yes, I thought, that was not intelligent. It may have been wonderfully witty, but at what cost? I remembered the words of, Do of Dujum Rimshe. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. I decided that the real razor edge of Dorje Bernachen's blade had to be the nature of my own decisions. There was a decision that I now had to make. Was I to apply again to the RCA in a year's time? 
That had been Derek Crow's suggestion. It was a good one. He was prepared to help me build other aspects to my portfolio. I could either take that good advice or I could look for my reflection in the blade of that shining copper cleaver. The idea had been to take an MA and possibly a PhD in order to have the best possibility of securing a position as an art school lecturer. That would have fitted well with Kyabje Dujam Rinpoche's idea of how I ought to organise my life. I'd explained to him that I would then have long holidays and the possibility of occasionally taking sabbatical years, especially if I could combine it with learning tanka painting and studies in Vajrayana iconography. I could continue with my practices as I had done on my BA at Bristol, and similarly as an art school lecturer. It had been the perfect plan. At that time, however, a new policy was gaining sway with art schools, that of not taking lecturing applicants immediately on conclusion of their degree courses. It was beginning to be seen as preferable for applicants to have had experience as working artists, illustrators or graphic designers. It was not a bad idea in some ways, but it was not useful for a person who had no interest in being a professional working artist. I was naturally interested in continuing to paint. I was naturally interested in the possibility of exhibiting my work but only from the basis of being a lecturer on an art school foundation course. How could I throw myself into the efforts required to become a working artist if my plan was to give it up to be a lecturer at some later point? With respect to the benefit it purported to give to art schools, it was also somewhat problematic. The result would be that lecturing applicants would be likely to be those who had failed in the commercial world. They would no longer get people who wanted to be lecturers as their first choice. Derek Crow saw the problem immediately and considered the new policy to be short-sighted. For once, Derek had no immediate answer other than to bite the bullet and do what was necessary, although he acknowledged it would seem a dispiriting option for me. I thanked Derek for his advice and then booked a one-way ticket for Amritsar on Afghan air. The cleaver of Dorje Bernachem had self-effectuated. It required an overdraft, but that was accommodated by my bank. I would work to pay it off and also raise enough to cover my time in the Himalayas. I left myself enough time to accomplish that, but just enough. I was to have taken a year out in any case before going to the RCA and laboured longer to raise healthy collateral for my sojourn in the Himalayas. If I'd done that, I could have secured a return flight to Delhi. I wanted, however, to hit the road as quickly as could be managed. I felt the need to see Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche as soon as possible. To sit in the Dujum Gompa. 
circumambulate the great Churton in Boda and then go to see Dudgeon Rinpoche just as I had done in 1971. I had missed Dudgeon Rinpoche for the three years of the illustration degree, but the feeling of separation had become exponentially intense. Buying the airline ticket was the answer. As soon as I had my ticket, it was as if I'd left it all behind. I sang, well, I'm going away with no word of farewell. I will not leave a trace behind. I could have done much better, didn't mean to be unkind. You know, that was the last thing on my mind. Goodbye forever. The idea of the one-way ticket also included the fact that I'd have to come back over land. I wanted to challenge myself with as much insecurity as I could arrange. Life circumstances were not going to have the whip hand. I was quite capable of facilitating my own emptiness. It made me feel better to have my hands on the handlebars with my right hand on the throttle. The thought that I could reject the notion of running for cover quite utterly seemed a strong position. I felt it was nobler to welcome the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune and jeer, is that the best you can do? Then I laughed at myself for being absurdly melodramatic. I'd travelled to MacLeod Ganj first to see Nakpa Yeshe Dorje and Jetsunma Kandro Tenzin Drolka and get my bearings, then straight to Nepal and speak with Kyavje Dujam Rimshe. He would set me on track for whatever was needed. I left Bristol feeling confident in terms of my plans, but almost as emotionally shell-shocked as I had been when Steve and Ron died back in 1970. My art career lay in ruins, just as my musical career had lain in ruins, just as my romance with Lindy Dale had lain in ruins, and just as my romance with Annalie and Alice lay in ruins before that. Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca had not died, but the possibility of romance had been given and taken away on the same day. The line from Steve's funeral service came back to me, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I knew it from the Bible study classes between the ages of 12 and 16 with the pedantic Mrs Pendrake. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1.21 I was not exactly thrilled by the idea of blessing anyone, particularly a putative, uncreated creator, for having taken away what had been taken away from me and from countless millions of mothers. Was the Lord to be blessed for the Nazi Holocaust and the pogroms in Russia? Considering the horrors inflicted since the dawn of time, my own tragedies became so utterly insignificant that my life may as well have been a continuous jamboree. I acknowledge that, but I was still left with some sort of dull ache in the area of my sternum. 
I knew it was a petty indulgence, but the sensation remained nonetheless. It could be intensified by immoderate speculative delving, but that could easily be relinquished. I could sit and allow self-absorption to dissipate, and so I sat. Where there is no self-absorption, there is no self-pity, no sadness and no emotional pain. Emotional pain was a choice to a certain extent, and a Nakpa had to make congruent choices about it. If I couldn't see myself justifying it to Dudjum Rimshe, I had no business feeling it. I went home to Farnham and sought employment at Boots Warehouse in Aldershot. I worked all the overtime on offer and spent the rest of my time either helping my mother look after my father, practising the Tromanakma Druptab, or lying in the garden reading books on Vajrayana. I saw no one. I went nowhere. My father had suffered a series of strokes and was incapacitated. He'd had a feverish few years in which he continued to drive his car. How he survived is vaguely miraculous. I'd once gone into Guildford with him and he clipped the wing mirrors of a couple of cars. Dreadful the way people park these days, he'd said. Yes, I replied, quite disgraceful. Back when I was 16, I'd agree with him just to keep the peace in the house. He'd back down on his hair-cutting threat, and so I felt it right and proper not to challenge any of his Tory concepts. He was a hangerman flogger man, and whenever he'd express such an idea, I'd respond, it's the only way. But later, when clipping wing mirrors, I was more concerned not to call him to question. I was glad in the end that I never questioned his driving abilities because he never had an accident which, in which he harmed anyone. Soon he had another stroke and became incapable of driving or even walking. I felt sorry for him. Our embattled history had evaporated years before in any case. I'd ceased to have any resentment toward him since 1968. Once I'd been free to wear what clothes I liked and grow my hair as, a, as long as I wished, the fierce old father I'd known for 16 years disappeared along with all traces of resentment. I was pragmatic about resentment. There was nothing to be gained from it. I had my freedom, so I'd lived that freedom. I didn't even need to forgive him. There was nothing to forgive. And now my pity was genuine. I'd talked to him whilst he was awake. I read when he was asleep. And then one day he never woke up. His life was over. The funeral was brief. Few people came. Uncle Bert was there, Aunt Elsie having died some years previously, and he sat in the car with me, my mother, Graham and Jill. My mother put my father's major's cap on the coffin and said, Now it is a military funeral. It is what Ernest would have wanted. Well, Uncle Bert responded, 
semi-military, let's say. Now, I liked Uncle Bert, but what a time to be vaguely quasi-factual. No one commented. My mother seemed unaffected by the remark. She was always wise that way, and she'd observed my upward roll of the eyes. My mother was adamant about my not changing the plan to leave for the Himalayas. I tried. I failed. It seemed it was better to allow my mother to be the strong woman she was. She was aware I'd been disappointed in a variety of ways. I'd told her about it, but only because she'd asked. Now she seemed determined I shouldn't be disappointed again so soon. I had to get on with my life. She'd be fine. There'd be far less work for her now. Just write me letters, Victor, but not more than once a week or so just to let me know that you are well and happy. I left Boots Warehouse, my last paycheck in hand, with the words goodbye forever unspoken, but singing in every molecule of my nervous, lymphatic, vascular little system. I remembered the words of Dudjamrimshu. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses.